is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. My name is Daenerys. And I'm Sophie. And today we're sitting down with Regan Chastain. Regan is a speaker, writer, ACE, certified health coach, and functional fitness specialist and activist. A self-described fathlete and dancer, she has performed at Carnegie Hall, won three national dance championships, and holds the Guinness World Record for heaviest woman to complete a marathon. In 2011, she left a successful consulting career to speak and write full-time about size acceptance and health at every size. She hosts monthly workshops on health, body neutrality, and self-love, and has spoken at numerous conferences and colleges. Her blog, Dances with Fat, explores the intersection of health, fatness, goodness, beauty norms, and body acceptances. Her blog's tagline and the theme at the center of her work reads, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are for all sizes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Reagan. And just to start off, we were hoping that you could tell us a little bit about your background and how you specifically got into this career about talking about fat phobia. Sure. So I've, you know, had my own personal sort of wobbly journey. And um, I, it really all culminated when I was started to dance competitively, and uh, had a judge tell me repeatedly after a competition that she couldn't stand to look at me because my I had my dress had my arms bare. And I had been doing like a lot of self-work around like the concepts of loving my body around the concepts of health and had actually uh, gotten into health at every size before I knew what it was because of a literature review. So my background is research methods and statistics. I'm a big old nerd. And I was looking for the best diet. I had been yo-yo dieting for years after having recovered from an eating disorder. And so I was decided I was going to do a literature review, find the best diet, the one that worked the most, I was going to do that. And what I found was that there wasn't a single study of any intentional weight loss attempt that more than like a tiny fraction of people succeeded at intentional weight loss. And often success was like five pounds, which like I could lose five pounds with a loofah and a haircut, right? So I have been on that personal journey. And then I was standing there after that dance competition and I had a background in activism where like I staged my first protest in kindergarten and I was just always someone where if something didn't seem fair to me, I was going to tell like the person in power that I could find and get access to. And then um, in college, I came out uh, in the mid nineties in Texas and got immediately into queer and trans activism. And uh, so I had that background, but I'd never really thought of fat people as a group of people who were oppressed. I really was conceptualizing it as an individual journey. And so standing there with that, you know, dance judge telling me she couldn't stand to look at me, I realized like, oh, I just want to be a fat dancer, but I'm going to have to be a fat activist to get that done. And that's what led me to start Dances with Fat. And at that time, I did not know there was a fat liberation community. I didn't know there was a health at every size community. I literally was just writing about myself and thinking about these things then on like a more population-based scale. And so that kind of uh, grew from there. I learned about fat acceptance community and like that people have been doing this since long before I was born. And that's kind of how I got into it. And then I started blogging and giving talks about this in 2009, went full-time um, at the end of 2011, so 2012, and then have just been doing that full-time ever since. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I can imagine that having somebody like a dance coach or a judge tell you those things is, is um, not the easiest to deal with and, and kind of reckon with. But going off of that, um, I'm really curious as to your thoughts to like 
intuitive eating, which is this new um, kind of non-diet or anti-diet method of, you know, theoretically mending your relationship with food. Um, do you have any thoughts about this or like uh, any, I guess, opinions regarding what it's doing for or against the fat community? Yeah, so intuitive eating has actually been around for a long time, but it's evolved over time to become more uh, weight neutral, fat positive in the way that it is uh, created and addressed, which I hugely appreciate that evolution. I think for a lot of people, it's really helpful because we do, the diet industry tells us that we can't possibly trust our own hunger signals or own satiety signals. And then you know, prolonged dieting and food restriction actually messes up that those signals. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so intuitive eating allows people to heal a lot of that, both physiologically and psychologically, and find a path to peace with food. It's not the only option. And I think that's important to understand. And it doesn't work for everyone. But it is one option for finding a way to sort of heal that relationship with food, extricate yourself from diet culture and create something new for yourself. Yeah, I'm really glad that you talked about that because I think there's one, there's a, a phenomenon lately about Noom, which kind of plays almost on these same attitudes. And I see ads everywhere. And I think the marketing around it is um, quite similar to dieting, but phrased in this kind of wellness um, attitudes. And so I was really wondering if I could hear about your thoughts on that as well as maybe as compared to intuitive eating, which is about healing that relationship with food. Yeah, Noom was on the forefront of co-opting the language of fat liberation and weight neutrality to sell diets. That's what they have been genius at. And what they're selling is nothing new. They're selling the same tropes that have been around since the 30s, right? Like I saw an ad, eat grapes instead of raisins and you'll feel more full. And I was like, yeah, 1985 called and it wants its diet advice back. This didn't work then. It won't work now. And I did an experiment. I do a lot of work within eating disorders community. And so I was curious, you know, what their protections are for people who might be using this in a, an unsafe way. And so I said, I currently weigh 300 pounds and within four months, I'd like to weigh 75 pounds and then hit the button, just hoping that like a big red flashing thing came up. Like, you know, this is a red flag, but nope. They were like, do you wait, do you want to lose 75 pounds or do you want to weigh 75 pounds? And I was like, I want to weigh 75 pounds. And they were like, great, we will create a program for you. So they're, the idea that they're about science, the idea that they're not a diet, none of this is true. And they don't have, they keep saying we can keep, like simultaneously they say, uh, we're brand new and we can help you keep the weight off for life. How would you know that if you're brand new? You don't have efficacy data past at least the time that you've been in existence. And in fact, they really base their long-term, and I'm using air quotes on long-term, uh, data on a 16-week study. So it's really like the evidence isn't there to support it. I think it's really damaging. And I think it's part of what we're seeing now is that as fat liberation community and weight neutral anti-diet community have gained momentum, we're now seeing those weight loss companies co-opt that language to sell the same old diets. And it's really unethical and just gross, frankly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And as you said, uh, Noom is basing like long-term effects off of a 16-week study, which is like 
exactly four months, but <laughs> I'm really curious going off of that during your AFT talk, you spoke a lot about like the scientific data of fat phobia and the way that science has been weaponized against um, the fat community. Uh, I'm curious, like how you've separated your personal experiences from the data. Yeah, so it's it's hard to do, right? Because it's data that impacts me directly. Um, when I did my literature review, the first one of going through all the data, I would have to say that the theme of that would have been what is happening? Because I'm reading studies and I'm seeing research methods that would have gotten me a hard F in freshman research methods class published in peer reviewed journals in JAMA. And so I realized pretty quickly that it's not just about reading what the research says, but saying who designed this research, what's the research design, who did they include and exclude, um, who funded this research, because what we see a lot, the thing with with intentional weight loss is that almost everyone can lose weight short term within a year. Then we see starting in the 1950s and replicated up to 2021 um, and, you know, still to this day, but the last study that I saw that really looked at it was in 2021, um, about 95% of people gain back all their weight up to 66% gain back the weight they lost. And so the diet industry knew that Weight Watchers, when they filed their original incorporation documents, had a repeat business model. They knew that uh, the biological response was short-term weight loss, long-term regain. And from the beginning, they've worked hard to take credit for the first part of that biological response and then blame their clients for the second part and get their clients to blame themselves and get everybody else to blame them when they gain the weight back. And that's why people say, oh, well, you know, they'll tell me, don't talk bad about Weight Watchers. I did it six times and it worked every time. And they're standing in front of me still fat. And it's like, we have a different definition of work, you and I, right? And so you have to look at the research. So what Weight Watchers does is they fund two-year studies. And the average person loses 10 pounds in the first year, gains back five pounds the second year, and then they stop tracking them and say everyone stayed below their original weight. And like fun research fact, you're not allowed to do that. You can't take a variable that's going straight up, simply stop tracking it and say, well, I'm sure it leveled off that day. That's not solid science. And um, so it's, to me, it was really disheartening. I mean, I was aware, you know, so much white supremacy within the research, underrepresentation of trans and non-binary people, underrepresentation of people of color. But like, I really was disillusioned as a trained researcher. I was like, I thought we could all get together like on math, right? And that if this study showed that people lost 2% of their body weight and then started gaining it back, certainly your conclusion wouldn't be people lost a significant amount of weight, but that's exactly what happens. And so Weight Watchers in a Federal Trade Commission meeting, the FTC said, you know, your five-year uh, data is terrible. You really need to start funding research out to five years at least. And they refused to do it. And they said, and I'm quoting here, it would be too depressing for our clients. So in a, in a world where the diet industry has been able to successfully rebrand themselves as healthcare, fund the research that exists and then simply say, we won't do studies that show that we don't succeed. We are harming tremendously fat people with interventions that were never likely to succeed. Right. I think that's so sobering, just thinking about the huge role that companies 
play in kind of creating this this their own science essentially and so obviously weight watchers we've talked about that and noom and how they're a huge component of the weight loss industry but i think one other thing that is really prevalent is just the promotion of exercise also as a solution to weight loss especially you know when new year's eve rolls around and everyone has to make their resolution for next year um and as you know a fat athlete what are your thoughts on over exercising exercise culture and the stigma around fat people going to the gym yeah so i first of all Fitness, not an obligation, not a barometer of worthiness, not entirely within our control, um, not anybody else's business unless we ask them to make it their business, right? These are the the components of the concept of fitness. Um, and I, my basic platform is nobody's obligated to participate, but everybody who wants to participate should be welcome. And that we should be honest. There are a lot of studies about health benefits people can get from movement. Absolutely no studies suggest that movement will create long-term significant weight loss. And so, for example, Gazer and Angadi just came out in 2021, and they were a huge meta-analysis of all the studies that existed around cardiorespiratory fitness, physical activity, and health. And what they found was physical activity created far more benefits than did weight loss attempts with much less harm. And they found that people were more probably more likely to adhere to programs around movement if doctors would stop telling them it was going to lead to weight loss, right? Because it's hard enough to find time to go to the gym, let alone if you think it's not working because you're not losing weight. And so I think that that lie puts a lot of people off. I think that toxic fitness culture puts a lot of people off of movement and fitness. And again, nobody's obligated for any reason. But like when we live in a world where fitness culture is about, like I always think about in that movie Dodgeball, when he's like, at Globo Gym, we're better than you. And we know it. Like that is toxic fitness culture right there. And like the nutshell of it. And so when so many people are excluded and then we blame them for not participating, that becomes a huge problem. So my thing is about bringing down barriers to access. And also, I always want to address within anti-diet, you know, health at every size community, we talk a lot about joyful movement and enjoyable movement. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? That's a great thing to try. But for a lot of people, they're moving for the benefits that they get from it, physical health, mental health, etc. Um, and they think of it more as like laundry or dishes, so that it's not that they're actually like getting joy from it, but it's just something that they're like, well, this supports me. And so I do it. And I always want to be clear, like, look, if you're trying to get benefits from movement, it's completely valid to choose the thing that you hate the least and do the bare minimum you need to get the benefit you're hoping for. Right. That's a legitimate relationship with movement. And so when we talk about joyful movement, often we create a situation where folks who are in the other situation feel really pressured or feel like they're doing movement wrong because because they don't love it. Um, and especially like, we don't talk very much about the trauma around movement, when we make recommendations around movement for health, right, that a lot of people had real messy breakups with exercise because of, you know, the president's physical fitness test, the pacer test, their crappy junior high school gym teacher, all of these things. And so uh, we there's that issue. There's also the issue that recommendations are also incredibly ableist. I know a wheelchair user who um, her recommendation, she has type 2 diabetes. They gave her a sheet that said um, you should try to walk 30 minutes a day, five days a week. And she's like, yeah, that'll really be something. 
Um, but this is really common. Just walk. When there are many people who either can't walk, for whom walking isn't a good option, or who don't like that, right? When the research just says it's just about movement. So to me, I want people to have access to the kind of movement that they want to do. And then I want to leave them alone to make choices. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I you <laughs> you said presidential fitness test and I flinched because <laughs> right. I, I have personal recollections of how horrible it was. Flexed um, arm hang. Why? I've never used that skill in my whole entire life. Have I ever had to do a flexed arm hang? Why? Yeah, absolutely. But um, you know, you've uh, <laughs> you know you hold the record for heaviest woman who's run a marathon, and you're also a three-time national dance champion. Um, how have you gotten over these stigmas and kind of gone forward and conquered, even though there is such a heavy stigma for people who are fat, but also athletic? Yeah. So for me, my motto is show up fat and refuse to leave. So I'm I have a lot of privilege, right? As a white person, cisgender, currently able-bodied, currently neurotypical. And so I want to use that privilege every way I can. And I want to create space in the fitness world, literally using my own body. So for me, setting the the Guinness World Record actually did, an, I did another marathon first with my best friend. Um, and I did it because I was recovering from a neck injury and I couldn't do the activity I actually liked. And they were like, look, you can just go for walks. And like that there are people who love that. Super cool. For me, I'm not a go for walks person. So I was like, I'm going to have to have some kind of big goal with a medal at the end, or I'm not going to do this. And so I did the marathon and then I found out after I could set the, the Guinness record. And I was like, oh, cool. I'll just send them my marathon time. They'll send me a, an additional medal. Whatever. No, like you have to do it. You can't do it retroactively. You have to get witnesses and video the whole thing. It's a lot of hoops to jump through. And so I decided to jump through those hoops because I wanted to set a record to be broken. To say, look, there are fat people out here doing this. Like I, um, I walked the marathon. Uh, you don't have to run. You don't have to be fast. If you want to carry your body over, you know, 26.2 miles, if you want to do that in a wheelchair, on a hand cycle, walking, running, whatever, at whatever size, try that if you want to. And to be clear, nobody has to. And I've done both. I can tell you for sure. Uh, completing a marathon and having a Netflix marathon are morally equivalent activities, right? And both, if you go slow enough, both an option to waste an entire Sunday. But yeah, it's, you know, I, I just really think it's important to use the, the privilege that I have to create space in the fitness world. And it's something that I like to do. And I am not into letting oppressors and bullies uh, mess up my life experiences and stop me from doing things that I enjoy doing. Sorry, I didn't realize I was muted, but I really, I really admire that approach. Um, this idea of kind of showing up using your privilege and refusing to leave until you're seen. Um, I think a lot of women deal with the fallout from fat phobia, especially when they're shopping for clothes. And you talked a little bit about this in your ath talk as well. But what advice do you have for these young women who struggle to see their body represented in common media or even in clothing stores when they're just going shopping and they want to have the same experience that we all do when we shop, but unfortunately, a store just doesn't have their size? Yeah, so that kind of 
oppression, lack of accommodation, being left out of social uh, things, it's really hard and it's real. Like it's not in our heads. And this is really important. Weight stigma is not in our heads and we cannot self-love our way out of systemic oppression. So no matter how much you love your body, it's not going to make clothes fit in a store that failed to accommodate you. So I think the first thing is to separate, like this is becoming your problem to deal with, but it's not your fault. They knew fat people existed. They should have clothed everyone. And there's no excuse or justification to me to not clothe everyone. Figure it out. Um, so there's that piece of it. And then, uh, you know, consider getting involved in fat fashion community. Saucy West, who's an incredible activist and fashion influencer and extended uh, size model, is currently doing a campaign called Fight for Inclusion. And you can find that on our social media as a hashtag that talks about not just celebrating when some sizes get included, but going all the way to the largest sizes. Because what we're one of the things that's happened is the concept of body positivity, which was created to be a radical fat activism concept, fat liberation concept, has sort of been co-opted by people who are much closer to the stereotype of beauty. So sort of slightly chunky white women in a lot of cases. And don't get me wrong, like I want slightly chunky white women to love their bodies. And I know that uh, fat phobia hurts people of all sizes, but it does the most harm to the people at the highest weights and the people with multiple marginalized identities. And so what happens when it gets co-opted like that is that if this is a, you know, a woman who's a size 16 and the legging company goes from making to a size 12 to a size 16, and this is an influencer who has hundreds of thousands of followers and she celebrates that, like it's a complete victory then it doesn't make it clear that there's a lot of people above her size that still don't have leggings. And so we tend to celebrate this idea of size inclusivity, even when it's not inclusive. Um, and this is a personal pet peeve of mine when you see brands that say, we make clothing for all shapes and sizes or we're size inclusive. And then you click and they go up to an 18 or a 22 or a 26, which I'm a 26, 28. So I'm often like a, the last size included, but I'm often included in ways that someone who's one size bigger than me is not. And if I celebrate that as like, oh, look, it's size inclusive because it meets my needs, I then erase the people whose needs aren't being met. And those taglines, when a company says, we sell clothes for all shapes and sizes, but they don't, they're dehumanizing people for a hyperbolic marketing tagline. And that's just ethically so wrong. And I just cannot let that go by without comment. No, absolutely. Um, I remember during your app talk, you brought up the point of that, I think it was Hollister or Abercrombie and Fitch that made the comment of, of we want, we only want to clothe people that are like cool and fun. And, you know, now they've gone through and done the like, you know, influencer hall of like, <laughs> we clothe like up to like what size 18, size 20. And Remy Bader is like the new star, you know, she's plus size. So therefore like, we're like accepted by like people who are not a size zero. So, you know, I, I personally really resonate with that. But I also wanted to ask like throughout your time as an activist, you've spoken to healthcare companies like Kaiser Permanente and higher ed institutions like Dartmouth and Caltech. Um, I'm really curious as to what your experiences have been in speaking to institutions like these and have there been adverse reactions to your research? And if so, how do you deal with that? It's been an interesting ride. So I started giving these talks to healthcare practitioners, higher ed universities in 2009. And 
at that time, and especially, so I speak to like general audiences about things like weight neutral healthcare journeys and dealing with weight stigma and fat phobia, including in healthcare. And then I speak to healthcare providers about evidence-based best practices for working with higher weight patients. And I speak to public health folks about creating size inclusive public health. So I speak kind of to both sides of this. And especially with the healthcare practitioners in 2009, the Q and A's were incredibly hostile. And people often were forced to come. So there would be one person who had like the juice to get me booked. And then everyone else was forced to come and mad about it. We used to be like, we'll feed you breakfast. You can wear jeans, like just trying to bring down the hostility. And I'm really seeing a change in that over time, which heartens me. It's certainly not, you know, fast enough. It certainly, you know, gives the most change to the most privileged people. Um, but I am seeing a change. When I first started, I would talk about patient engagement and how like weight stigma in healthcare caused patients not to go to the doctor. And the most common reaction was, well, that's on them. Like if they don't come to the doctor, what do you want me to do? And so I changed uh, that model at that time to be you're obligated to provide ethical evidence-based interventions. Weight loss doesn't qualify for the following reasons. Here's an hour worth of reasons. Q&A time, fight me. And like, that was my model. And now I'm able to go back and start talking about patient engagement. And there's much more understanding of the concept of weight neutral health, understanding of the harms of weight stigma, and even people starting to, to grasp that the evidence doesn't support weight loss as an intervention. And so I really feel like I'm seeing a change. Q and people are showing up by their own choice. They're asking, you know, questions in a non-hostile, curious way. It's really, you know, I'm seeing a change there and it makes me have some hope. I'm really glad that things have definitely become less hostile, but I'm sure that it's still, you know, deeply personal and sometimes really intense to be giving these talks and to be addressing, you know, healthcare institutions and doctors every day. And so I'm curious to know, how do you deal, deal with burnout from activism? And specifically, do you have any practices or things that you like to do that rejuvenate you? Yeah, so it's an interesting thing. This is an area where I have a lot of what I will call like personality privilege. Um, confrontation doesn't usually wear me out. Um, I get in a confrontation, I get really clear headed. And all the information I have in my head is pretty immediately available to me in a way that makes that easier than it would be for somebody with a different personality. And again, that's completely like privilege and luck of the draw stuff. Um, so I think it doesn't drain me as much necessarily. Um, and I can separate, I was just talking to a doctor about um, recommendations for uh, higher weight people with diabetes for weight loss surgery. And I was like, look, we don't even have any data for past 10 years. And he was like, right. And that's true. And it's a problem. But honestly, nobody wants to fund those studies. So we'll probably never have that data. And I was like, look, as a researcher, I hear what you're saying as a fat patient, that is horrifying to me, right? That what you're saying is, we don't know, and we don't care enough to find out, but we're definitely going to give you this intervention anyway. So like being able to separate that and honor my feelings as a patient and then work with somebody to like bring them along with the, you know, harm reduction model and work that I can possibly do is a piece of it. I consider activism self-care for myself. So, and I think the reason or the ways that I do that are I don't focus on the outcome of activism all the time. I know that I can't control that. I can, can only control what I do. So when I see like 
the horrors of the world. And I can, even if I'm just posting, like, here's someone else's blog post about this, or here's some information that gives me that like sense of, okay, I pushed back against that. Like I did something about that. And that, and again, this is just a me thing, but that rejuvenates me a lot. I have an incredible partner and incredible family who are super supportive. And so that again, luck and privilege, right? My mom has always, I've been like this since, you know, before I started going to school and she's been a hundred percent behind it, even though it did not make me the easiest kid to raise. So I've been really lucky that way. I have two adorable dogs, um, who I, you know, hold and cuddle sometimes against their will. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, those things, I do a lot of fitnessy stuff and that helps me personally just to like be able to move around and, and get it out. That helps me as well. So, you know, kind of a combination of things. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I really hope that any activists who are listening to this in the future will be able to take some really great tips away from that. Um, but unfortunately, that is all the time we have today. So thank you so much, Reagan, for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And to our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Stay hungry.